If you have the Bible with you, I pray that you would join me in Genesis chapter 1. Should sound familiar if you were here this morning. No, Brother Al and I did not plan this. It's almost as if there's someone behind it all. Genesis chapter 1, and then if you wouldn't mind, put your finger on John chapter 1. It's where we'll start off tonight. Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1. We're going to fly through the scriptures tonight. Uh, We won't stay in one text like we usually do from this pulpit. We're going to be more thematic in our time together tonight because I want to give you as much as I can a snapshot of the things that we learned at camp. The theme for summer retreat at Lee University with Generate was the darkness and the light. Jason Cook, our camp preacher, did a wonderful job tracing this theme throughout the Bible. So I pray and hope that today you and I can get a condensed version that you might want to unpack and chew on at a later time. We're going to be, like I said, starting in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Before we go any further, you join me in prayer. God in heaven, this is your word, penned by your Holy Spirit written through your disciples. And so, Lord, we pray that we as followers of Jesus coming together tonight to read and to study your word, that we might meet you here, that you might speak to us, that we might be changed by the power of this word, that in the darkness of our hearts, in the darkness of this world, there is a light that shines that will never be extinguished And our future hope is that there is a day coming where there will be no more darkness at all. So, Lord, until that day comes, help us as your people to shine as light in the darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my goal tonight is to give you four big ideas from camp. And hopefully they will make sense together. Uh, But if you like to take notes, buckle up because the points are long. I am not very clever and I just want to plagiarize Jesus and give you as much truth as I can from his word. So if you're taking notes, here's here's the first big idea we learned at camp from these two verses. Jesus, the word of God and light of the world, shines in the darkness and brings order out of chaos. So we have to see that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, if you look back at Genesis 1, you'll see this in the text, the, the earth was formless and void. And in verse 3, we see that God creates Light. He says, let there be light, and there was light, meaning that before then, the world was formless, void, it was chaotic, and it was dark. And the Spirit of God, it says, hovered over the face 
of the waters. Now that's important because we need to see in this text that all there was before God spoke light into being was darkness, chaos, and water. Now in the ancient Near East and all throughout antiquity, if you want to drum up feelings of terror and fear, feelings of confusion and the unknown, just start talking about the ocean. If you've ever been to the beach before, if you've ever seen the ocean, or if you've ever been out on the open water, uh, it's a scary place. Uh, There's so much there that's unknown. There's so much calamity that can come from the seas. And so when the Israelites were reading these words penned by Moses, inspired by the Spirit, they would have picked up on the language that all that covered the earth was the thing that caused them fear. And in Genesis, we see all three persons of the Trinity active in creation. God creating the heavens and the earth, the Spirit hovering over the waters. But the question remains is, where is the Son? And according to John chapter 1, we know with clarity that He is there because He is the Word of the Father. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It is through the word of the Father, the Logos, the Son of God, that all things were made. And so we need to start with this cosmic scope, as we started with at camp, that God, the three-in-one triune God, the one that there is no one like in all creation, in all world religions, He is the one who creates all things. And it is the word, specifically, that brings light out of darkness and order, out of chaos. This cosmic scope, though, needs to be zoomed in because if we're honest with ourselves, we as sinners are riddled with darkness and chaos. We know that our lives are not in our own control, and we often are tossed about on the waves of the sea of a broken world. And we are filled with darkness and sin and wickedness in our thoughts and in our desires and in our actions. And we know that trying to fix these things in and of ourselves only results in a temporary fix. But we cannot, we cannot fix our own soul. We need someone to speak a better word to us. We need someone to step in and shine a light in our darkness. We need someone to come and draw out order out of our chaos and bring us to peace. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So our second main idea tonight is this. Jesus radically, sovereignly saves those in darkness and brings them into the light all for the glory of God. So turn with me to John. You should be in John chapter 1. Just flip over a couple of pages to John chapter 8. And we just need to see Jesus saying this before we move on to a really powerful and beautiful story. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Jesus proclaims here in this text a few things. First, that he is the light of the world, that by following him, believers will not walk in darkness, but instead have the light of life. And for you and me as Christians, this is a wonderful promise, that no longer do we have to live our days out in darkness, but we can have hope and confidence that we live in the light of Jesus. 
But there's something else we need to see in verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And that little phrase, I am, would clue us in to say something more about Jesus than merely that he's a prophet. Something more about Jesus than that he is merely uh, empowered by God. No, I am is the covenant name of God. And all throughout the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus say, I am, I am, I am. Culminating at the end of this chapter where he tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees knew, Jesus, you're not saying this because you're trying to make any kind of confusing statement. No, we're about to stone you because you, although a human, make yourself to be God. Jesus is able to bring light out of darkness. And for those who follow him, we get to walk as children of the light. But that begs the question, how do we follow Jesus? And that sounds like maybe a basic elementary foundational question, but we should not presume that we all know with clarity what it means to follow him. We shouldn't presume that everyone knows the steps. And in one sense, scripture is very plain. We are familiar with Paul's uh, proclamation in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. We come to be saved with nothing to offer except our sin. And Jesus comes with all that we need to have life and righteousness in him. The command is clear that if you are in sin, run to Jesus Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins and follow Jesus. Surrender your life to him as a living sacrifice. But there is another sense in Scripture in which it is plain that the Lord himself has to effect salvation if we as darkened, dead sinners have any hope of being with him in the light. And that sets us up for the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. So you should be even on the same page, maybe one page over. Let's read this passage together. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's, it's still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There it is again. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. 
Here is a beautiful story of the Lord Jesus' power to bring light out of darkness. Here's a man born blind. All he knows is the darkness. And the disciples point out that this blind man begging must have been uh, the, the recipient of some kind of curse because of sin. And so they ask Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was he a sinner Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? How did these things come to be? And Jesus responds by reframing the question. The man's blindness, Jesus says, is not because of sin per se, but it exists for the works of God to be on display through him. This man clearly knew he was blind. All of his life, all that he has known is blindness. And as we know in the text, he had no idea what was about to happen next. Jesus speaks a word to him and gives him a command to follow. And this man obeys this command from Jesus and comes back being able to see. But notice what's not in this passage. This blind man did not ask Jesus to be healed. This blind man was not calling out like many others in Israel at the time, calling for Jesus, the Lord, the rabbi, the son of David, to have mercy on them. No, this blind man had nothing but his darkness. And yet, Jesus steps into his darkness and at his own prerogative, with his own authority, restores this man's sight. The miracle of bringing light from darkness always gives glory to God. And the same is true whenever a lost, darkened sinner steps into the light of salvation. We are clearly commanded to come to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This call goes out to the ends of the earth, but Jesus is Lord. And when he calls, his creation responds. His word is sure. It is faithful, it is good, it is unstoppable. So if we are in the light, if we have been called to by the Lord Jesus and we've been brought from darkness into light and we're now walking as children of the light, following this light of the world, what is our mission? What is our task? Now we at Lakeview know this Clearly, but it bears repeating. So third big idea from camp is this. We as followers of Jesus are called to be salt and light, preserving the world from decay and shining into the darkness. If you would, flip back just a few pages to Matthew chapter 5. Near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives a powerful statement about the identity of who his followers are. As citizens of a new heavenly kingdom, you and I as Christians have been given a clear task on the earth. Jesus tells us in this text, we'll read in just a moment, that we are now the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are salt. We are light. Let's read Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So first, you are the salt of the earth. Now, Salt in the first century had two major functions. Number one, it was used as an additive for food. Now, when you and I, if we have a really, really good meal, I, I get on to uh, my wife about this all the time. My dad is a great cook. He's a firefighter, and all of them know how to cook well. And he loves to grill. He loves to cook steaks and pork chops and chicken breasts and all these things that just are so delicious. And very often when we have steak, without taking a bite, my wife will reach for the steak sauce and pour it on her plate. And I say, wit, will you at least just try the meat on its own? Like, it, it's good by itself. It doesn't need anything else, right? A good cook, a good chef, will use the right ingredients not to destroy the flavor of what they're trying to create, but to really bring it out. And if we overuse salt, we destroy the flavor that already exists so that all we can taste is salt. Here's the point. Salt does not exist for salt's sake. Salt exists to bring out something already present. Number two, it's used as a preservative. So in the first century, uh, the Israelites were not storing all their meat in freezers uh, because they didn't have working electricity. So how do they keep their meat from rotting? How do they keep it from spoiling? They salted their meats. They would use it to preserve their food. So, Salt is used to bring out what's already there. Salt is used to preserve food from decay. Jesus' hearers would have immediately caught on to the kind of role he was giving them by saying, you are the salt of the earth. But then he says this, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That begs the question for you and I as modern people in 2021, have you ever had unsalty salt? The answer's no, because it's not real. That doesn't exist, right? Salt is salt is salt is sodium chloride is salt. There is no such thing as unsalty salt. So what does Jesus mean that salt can lose its taste? Well, in the first century, salt merchants sometimes would extend their salt uh, quantities by cutting it with things like sand or other impure materials. And if you cut salt enough with impure materials, it loses its saltiness. So what's the point? The point's this. When believers who are the salt of the earth find themselves mixed with the things of this world, the decay of wickedness, the rot of our sin, their usefulness as salt is forfeit. And I am so thankful, this is just an encouragement to you, that We as a church fight to be salty. We as a church have eyes to see by the grace of the Holy Spirit to look at the world and see it for what it is that we'll not mix ourselves with the wickedness of this world. Now, God created a good 
world. And there is so many things that we might give glory to God for. Every time I see uh, stars in the sky at night, I think of Psalm 19, verse 1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. But we know we live in a world that is fallen and broken and sinful. So Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. Not only that, we know particularly well in America that too much salt will kill you. And so if salt is all about salt, if, if we only care about ourselves, if we are, as Martin Luther famously wrote, curved in on ourselves, seeking our own glory and our own righteousness and our own good above others, if that's our chief desire, we may live a long, prosperous life in this world, but it will lead to death. So, we are salt, and we are light. We are the light of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. But now here in Matthew 5, he's saying, no, 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 you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You, as light, go into the dark world and reveal what's really there. Now again, lamps don't exist for their own sake. You and I wouldn't walk into a, a famous art museum full of priceless treasures and look around and say, man, these light bulbs are awesome. No, it's, it's not the point of lights to show themselves to be the object of our affection. No, good lights reveal what's in front of us already. But for light to reveal, you need a source. Lamps need fuel, light bulbs need electricity, and thanks be to God, Christians have Christ. We have, by faith, been united to the light of the world. And so now, all that we have, we have by virtue of Christ. The Spirit of Christ now indwells us and empowers us to live as light, even when we're surrounded by darkness. By faith, all that's true of Christ is now reckoned to you. His righteousness, his standing before the Father, his victory over death, and more and more. It is all yours by faith. And this is incredibly powerful when we ever wrestle with our own value or our own status before God or the reality that we still continue to struggle with sin. Church in Christ... Our God continuously delights in you. And he rules over you with happy confidence because he rules over you in his son. And why do we shine as light in the darkness? Jesus answers this question in verse 16. Ultimately, it's so that the world might see the light of our holiness and give glory to God. We don't shine for our sake, but we shine for the Lord's sake and for the sake of those who might come before God through our faithfulness. The beautiful, fantastic, almost unbelievable news of the Great Commission is that the sovereign Lord of all creation has seen fit to use you and me to be the means by which the blind will receive their sight. He's seen fit in his infinite wisdom to use sinful, broken image bearers empowered by the Spirit of Christ to go to all the nations, to, to reach out to all of those in London or all of those in Asia or all of those in Africa or all of those in Auburn so that through the shining of our light, 
they may meet the light of the world. But one day, church, the darkness and the blindness will be removed once and for all. We see pictures all through Scripture of our promised future, but one day we know with confidence, with hope, that the kingdom will come in its fullness. So fourth big idea tonight, the kingdom of God will shine in its glorious fullness at the return of Jesus, and darkness will be no more. So find with me Hebrews chapter 12. Just a couple more places, and then we'll land the plane. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews, as you're finding Hebrews 12, we'll pick it up in verse 25. The author of Hebrews has moved his readers from the terror of Israel standing around the, uh, the mount of Mount Sinai, listening with great fear to the voice of God speaking to Moses. And he's moved his readers and listeners from that scene to the better covenant that we have in Christ, who sprinkled his blood for our salvation. Now let's pick it up in verse 25, because this trajectory of redemption continues. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One day, the heavens and the earth will shake at the voice of the Lord, and all that will be left is his perfect, full kingdom. The heavens and the earth will be shaken. Not just sinners and believers, but all creation will be subject to his work of both redemption and judgment. Church, this is fuel for a life of holy living, worship and awe. And it is incredible hope for tomorrow. And that's where I want to end today. Revelation chapter 21. Last last stop on the on the route. Revelation chapter 21. What began as a creation formless and void, chaotic and dark, will one day be glorified as the indestructible new heavens and new earth. This is where we're headed. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And don't miss this last phrase. And the sea was no more. And remember back in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. All that would draw up terror and fear and feelings of confusion and the unknown, these unstoppable forces of creation that man seemed weak against, All the things that would cause them terror and fear is gone. The sea was no more. 
the source of darkness and chaos and unstoppable power is subdued once and for all. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. There's coming a day where we will have nothing to fear. In Christ, we know in our heads that there really is nothing to fear, but that's a lot harder to get from here to here. And often we still walk with feelings of fear, feelings of doubt, feelings of the unknown. But one day we will know in fullness that there is nothing to fear. We could keep reading this whole chapter, but we need to land the plane. So look at verse 22, Revelation 21. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, we are moving unstoppably toward a day where there will be no more darkness, no more fear, no more pain, no more death, we are moving towards a day where all that will be left for the children of God is the light of God and the Lamb. Where we won't need a temple anymore to go to God because God's dwelling place is with man. We're going forward to a day where the glory of the nations will be brought into this kingdom and we will enjoy the fruits of creation and the new creation with our king forever and ever and ever. And every day will be the most wonderful day. There is darkness, but light has overcome the darkness. We know this to be true and we know that it's coming in its fullness, but we feel the tension because we live in this time between the times. Jesus says, I'll be with you even until the end of the age. He tells us that we're living in this already, but not yet. We know that the light of the world has come, but he is coming again. We know that darkness and death and sin and the grave and the devil have been defeated, but one day they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so until that day comes, we as the church of Jesus Christ might shine as light in the darkness, confident that not only will the gates of hell not stand against it, but the darkness will have to flee. When we turn on the lights, darkness doesn't get the option to stay or go. It always leaves. And by God's grace, when we shine as the people of God, the darkness of this world will be pushed back farther and farther and farther as we await our coming king. Now I know that as we do every sermon and every message here at Lakeview, the fact of the matter is there are some in this room who may not be able to understand rightly and comprehend uh, rightly and rejoice wonderfully in these truths because you are still blind. You still walk in darkness. And so let text of scripture I, I quoted just a, a little, little while ago from Matthew 11, ring true in your ears. Jesus says, 
to anyone who is weary, anyone who is heavy laden, anyone who is full of burdens, anyone who realizes that they are blind, groping about in the darkness. If you come to Jesus, he will give you rest. If you come to Jesus, he will anoint your eyes and give you sight. He will shine into your heart. He will bring life and light out of darkness and chaos. And so Adam's gonna come up, the team's gonna come up, we're gonna sing a song and have a time to respond. And my hope and prayer for you is that if you are not in Christ, if you are not walking in the light, that tonight would be the night that the Spirit of God shines in your heart. And if you are a believer, if you do walk as a child of light, you might once again be reminded that you are the light of the world. So go and walk as children of the light. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, we are so grateful for your grace. We're grateful that your light cannot be overcome by the darkness. And we pray that we as the church of Jesus Christ might respond now in worship, in spirit and truth for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.